Welcome to the Dialogue by Wirepoints, connecting the dots between our economy, government, and people. And now your hosts, Ted Dabrowski and Mark Glennon. Mark Glennon here. Welcome to the Dialogue from Wirepoints, and welcome to our new format that includes video. Uh, especially happy today to be rolling out our new video format and to be starting the first of what we hope will be many interviews with candidates for uh, many of the, the uh, more important races in Illinois. And today we're pleased to be joined by Mayor Keith Peacow from Orland Park, a southwest suburb of Illinois. He just won the uh, uh, primary election for that seat on the Republican side uh, on Tuesday uh, by a rather handy margin of uh, uh, 10 points. Uh, Keith is a uh, former combat uh, pilot who served in southern Iraq, uh, a businessman. He started a couple businesses in Orland Park and has been a quite popular mayor in Orland Park, where we became familiar with him. Um, Keith, tell us uh, if I left anything out of your bio and uh, give us a little story about what got you into the uh, your interest in thinking that you should represent the, the 6th District down there. Sure. Thanks, Mark. And I'm happy to be on your inaugural run of, uh, of video here. Uh, so my background, I, I was uh, adopted, raised here in Orland Park and uh, undergrad aerospace engineering at Arizona State University, went into the Air Force and wasn't a pilot. I was a weapon system officer. So I was a backseater for those of you who just saw the most recent Top Gun. Um, I guess I was Bob or I was Goose in the old Top Gun. Um, but that's that's what I did in the in the Air Force uh, with a, few, a couple of combat tours to Iraq. Um, an MBA from Duke, a consultant, and then I bought a small business here uh, in the in the local area. Had that for 16 years. I sold that in 2019. Ran for mayor in 2017 because uh, I felt the mayor was doing a bad job. I mean, he just uh, jacked up his pay for a big pension spike, um, which obviously went into effect. And you know, I was the beneficiary of that pay for four years, but I refused to take a pension. I didn't. That's what it was about. And they had made the position full time, so I treated it as such. But then I lowered it back down to a part time position lowered the pay back to where it was. Uh, so um, that so that's where I sit now. And the reason that I'm running for Congress, it certainly wasn't my lifelong goal to be in, in politics at all or be a mayor. But when that was done, I said, someone has to step up and run. So I did. Um, I've realized I'm pretty good at it. And then uh, as far as Congress, same thing, not a lifelong goal. But what, we've, what we're seeing in Washington and particularly uh, what turns out to be Sean Kasten, but it was Kasten and or Newman. It was going to be one of those two. And their policies are way far left. And, you know, inflation, all their policies, they support all the policies that are extremely inflationary. They basically support socialist policies and they support all the, the policies that are, you know, are driving crime so high. And we need somebody in Washington that steps up and does something about that. And I think somebody with my background, you know, military consultant, a uh, small business owner and a mayor brings a unique perspective that we could use in Congress. Yeah, Keith, your, your opponent will be Sean Kasten. Of course, he, we invited him to join us. Haven't heard back yet. He's a uh, sitting congressman. Uh, you're, you're running in the new 6th district. We have redrawn maps. Uh, your map seems to be quite homogeneous uh, in the south, sub, south suburbs, running from uh, Palos and Orland Park up, up through some of the other western suburbs which have, which have been traditionally kind of white bread suburbs built after World War II um, but they're changing a little bit uh, it's been described as a challenging district for a Republican by the Chicago Tribune but give us your take on, on what the district is like and what you think your chances are there 
Uh, so I, I so I agree with your assessment that it's a fairly homogeneous uh, uh, district relative to others. If you think about where it extends from Orland Park and it goes into even the Mount Greenwood and Beverly areas of Chicago are fairly suburban like, and then it goes up to the western suburbs. So the communities are slightly different, but they're very very similar. So the nice thing about that is probably more like what districts should be throughout the country, where you're actually representing people that have similar needs. Uh, which we don't necessarily see in Chicago with some of these districts that go all the way from, uh, you know, in the inner city all the way out to, uh, you know, or, or, you know, we see Evanston going all the way out to Lake Zurich and things like that, that, that they just don't, they just don't match. So in that case, it's, it's, it's good. Um, I disagree with the national pundits, but they don't really understand the district as well as we do. I think that district is fairly neutral, leans slightly Democratic plus uh, maybe plus two. Uh, way less than either the third or the sixth did before. So it's a very, very winnable district for Republicans. It will always be a toss-up district, I believe. And uh, um, therefore, it makes it very, very winnable. I also think that you know, my opponent is very far left. I mean, he's on, on mo many issues. He's actually left of the squad. And I think that if the Democrats, certainly down in the Cook County area that I'm very familiar with, uh, are even the Democrats, they're pretty conservative Democrats. And uh, I don't think that uh, that Sean Casson's message will resonate with them. So I think it's a very positive district for Republicans. Yeah, Keith, tell us what uh, issues you expect to make paramount in your your race here for Congress. I think the issues are going to be the same as what the issues uh, you know were in the primary. It's going to be you know inflation in the economy and crime. Those are the two those are the two huge issues that we have to that, that we have to tackle. And when you're paying almost $6 a gallon, I just filled up my tank. It was $125 to fill up my Dodge Durango. Uh, everyone's dealing with that. And even people in some of the more affluent parts of my district, they're making decisions, um, different decisions because of gas prices. And, and some of the people that are in more of the blue collar areas uh, that may not be as affluent, they're making decisions between filling up their tank or filling up half a tank and buying groceries and we need different policies that address those issues for hardworking Americans. And that's critical. And then, of course, we all know about the crime issue here. And, you know, Sean Kasson's a supporter of Kim Fox's policy, supporter of emptying the jails. Um, did, you know, said nothing supports uh, uh, Governor Pritzker's policies of HB 3653, which don't support the police. Um, he wants to see the police funding reduced. And uh, I don't think that's what the people in this district want. And in Orland Park, even being in Cook County, we've shown that there's a different approach that you can take. We're named the eighth safest city in uh, in the country, eighth safest small city in the country in 2021, the safest city in Illinois in 2020. And our crime index crimes, crimes against people and persons, are the lowest they've been in 27 years. And that's because we've taken we we have proactive police policies. So, well, t tell me about those policies because this is in fact uh, one of the issues you ran on. And uh, a lot of people talk about crime; they don't have much for solutions but you claim to have a good record. I haven't double checked those numbers that you've said uh, apparently seems to be working. What have you done differently in Orland uh, that, uh, that has worked? Well, just so you know, the BGA and the Sun-Times fact check those numbers and, and those numbers are accurate. Um, so what have we done differently? Well, first and foremost, our community supports the police. So first and foremost, you have to support your police department. Um, secondly, there's a lot of different programs that you can, that you can implement that, that have an impact. So some of the things that we've done, uh, one is that we, uh, we, all of the evidence we collect, we um, process ourselves or we send it to a lab to process and we get it back within 24 hours. What does that mean? 
It means instead of waiting six months to 12 months from the state, it means we get them back immediately so we can get charges against people while they're still in custody. We don't have to turn a criminal loose and then go back and find them when we get the charges 12 months later. So that's critical. Um, we also, our businesses, as part of their licensing requirements, they're required to cooperate with our police. And I'll give you an example. We had a pharmacy in town that had $1,000 worth of liquor stolen. They refused to sign a complaint. Didn't make me very happy or our chief very happy. So we cited them for code of conduct uh, for a licensee. And we, I stripped their uh, liquor license for, I suspended it for a couple of weeks. And, uh, and I also fined them. And guess what? Now they sign complaints. Because if you don't sign complaints and criminals know they can come to your location, you're bringing criminals to our town that then, um, that, that then do the same thing to other businesses. We also had some retail businesses do the same thing. They got sent to the MV court. They get a couple of tickets and then they start signing complaints. And when they start signing those complaints and we start getting charges against people, then the criminals stop coming. So that's also very helpful. We use technology, a significant amount of technology that really helps us. And we're very proactive. We have a group called the Targeted uh, Response Unit, and they use that technology and intelligence to actually focus on getting criminals before they commit a crime against a person or a crime or a property related crime. So we've been able to get a lot of criminals with illegal weapons off the streets in advance of them committing a crime here by looking at, by, you know, normal traffic stops. Um, you know, they don't have their plates on their car. They don't have, um, you know, they, uh, they look, they're suspicious in a parking lot. So we, we, we go to, we go see that we look at that car um, we see it doesn't have a front plate or whatever. That gives us a reason to look inside the car. Then we see inside the car, there's drugs laying on the, the seat. Well, obviously, then we can sit on that car and then we can then we can uh, um, talk to the uh, the owners and search the car and we find a lot of weapons. So we've done that through normal traffic stops. We've done it at our retail centers. So we do a lot of that. The other two policy, the other two big programs, our mall put in a use supervision policy in March of uh, last year. And during that, since that time, um, one, we've denied entry to over 10,000 people or the mall has, but also there have been no retail thefts on Fridays or Saturdays from juveniles during that time. And those were our highest um, theft times. And the last program, which is actually a federal grant that we've used, is a mobile response unit, which allows us to have mental health professionals on call. And whenever we get a mental health related call and it's nonviolent, we call them in and they take over the call. And the benefit of that is, one, it keeps our police officers on the street. But two, police officers are the only one that can, can involuntarily commit somebody. And that takes them off the street for five hours. Well, we re we've reduced those involuntary committals by 35%, keeping officers on the street. The other thing is, is that these people that have these mental health crises, it's the worst day of their lives. And the last thing they need to be is in the criminal justice system. So we're getting them the help they need. So those are the types of things that can be implemented that when you take all those things into effect, have the results that they've had. Uh, Keith, in, in the primary, you had two pretty tough candidates, uh, tough being kind of hardball. They went after you personally and they were better funded than you. How are you able to beat them? Well, I've been better funded in every or had, went against opponents that were better funded every single time. And it's not that I'm poorly funded. I just need enough funding to run my campaign. Here's what we've done since the day I ran for mayor is we run fact-based campaigns. And I point out the facts that I, where I'm different than the opponents and maybe things the opponents don't like, um, but they're facts. I don't go after people personally. I don't make things up. And that's exactly what, and it's unfortunate in a Republican primary that people, I mean, that literally just made things up about me. 
And uh, that's what you do when you have nothing to actually point to that you can, uh, that you can um, identify a problem with any of my policies is you make it up. If you don't have any facts to actually support your positions to attack me, well, we'll just make it up and say whatever. And that's what I've experienced for the last five years. And I think people are smarter than that. I think they can move beyond that. And I think if you talk to them with facts and rational arguments and you contrast yourself with your opponents and their positions versus yours, I think that the majority of people can see through that and you'll win. Some people buy off on the on the smears, but the majority don't. And all you need to do is get a majority in the election. Keith, I'm going to take the liberty of answering, uh, adding something to your answer. Uh, you are a particularly good communicator. This is how you've got on our radar screen. Your messaging has been uh, very tight and effective, fact-based, as you say. Uh, we noticed this. You came onto our radar screen when uh, we were criticizing some of the elements in our COVID response at the state level. You had some of the same criticisms to make uh, quite harsh ones. And uh, truthfully, Ted and I were watching one of your videos once and we looked at each other and said, uh, why, why didn't we say that? I mean, he put it better than we did. Uh, but uh, uh, that there's a shortage of that in the Republican Party in Illinois. We don't have a lot of good communicators. And uh, I certainly encourage you to, 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 to stick to that fact-based strategy because uh, that's what we found at Wire Points is what people want to hear. And uh, they're tired of the platitudes and such. Uh, Keith, uh, let's go through some of the hot button issues at the federal level that you'll be faced with. Uh, um, short answers if you can, but if that's not fair and you need uh, longer answers for some of these, but uh, these are the things they'll go after you on. Of course, the big one right now is um, abortion uh, uh, movement in Congress. You, you might be asked to vote on and uh, federalizing Roe versus Wade. What's your position on that? Well, I don't think that very rarely should anything be federalized. These are state related issues. And I think that's what happened. This re, this was returned to the states. As far as my position on uh, on the, the abortion issue, I was adopted. I was adopted seven years before Roe v. Wade. I'm also an adoptive parent. So I'm pro-life. And my opponent has a very different approach. He agrees with the Illinois law that allows abortion all the way up to the time of birth. I think that people can make their decisions, whether they think someone who wants, I want to see more adoptions and I want to make adoptions available versus someone who is willing to abort a child, you know, as they're coming out in the birth canal. I, I think those are two very different points of view. And I think the point of view of wanting to see more adoptions and wanting to see less abortions, I think is, is, uh, is an appropriate one. Enforcing the border. It's been a big issue. Uh, we're not enforcing the border as the case may be. Uh, what's your what's your view on the Trump administration's handling of the southern border? Uh, I think the Trump administration handled it pretty well. I think Biden's handling it very poorly. Uh, we you know we have an immigration issue in this country. We need to re revamp all of our immigration policies. But before we do anything with our immigration policies, we have to control our own borders because anything that we do with an immigration law, if you have an open border, you're just going to get flooded again. And Ronald Reagan was my favorite president, but that was a mistake. The amnesty bill without handling our borders first. And our borders do not just mean our physical southern border, it means all of our borders. So we need to, whether it's a wall, whether it's technology, we need to control our, our borders, but we also need to control our visa system. Half the people that are here illegally overstay their visas. So we have to have a way to monitor that so that people are not overstaying their visas. We need legal immigration and we're a nation of immigrants, but we need immigration that helps American people and helps America. We don't need immigration that is just 
helping other people in poor countries. I can't, I can't blame them for wanting to come here. But at the end of the day, we need to look out for the American people that are here currently. Uh, continuing with the hot button issues, Donald Trump, good guy, bad guy. What do you think? Uh, so Donald Trump, it's no secret. I was a delegate for Donald Trump. I liked a lot of his policies. I wish he had gone about it on a personal level a little bit differently than he did. And uh, he's not running anymore. I'm running in 2022. And, and that's what we're going to focus on. It, you know, currently, Joe Biden's the president. And it's his policies that are taking us down a, a very horrible course uh, with, uh, you know, inflation higher than it's been in 40 years. It seems like we've brought back the policies of the 1970s, high inflation, higher. We're going to have higher interest rates, uh, shortages of gas, shortages of other materials. And we really need to focus on um, changing those policies and get back to uh, better policies for the American people. Um, public education, the woke indoctrination in schools, as many claim, uh, explicit sexuality in schools, uh, that has been a hot button issue. We've seen it. The mama bears are arising. It's a grassroots uprising that uh, uh, really has overtaken the country. Uh, is that a local issue, federal issue, or where do you stand on that? Well, I think schools are also a local issue, uh, and the, the attempt to federalize it is uh, is really unacceptable. And we need to bring back that control back to the local uh, to local uh, communities. And if the if federal dollars are going to flow in, we should do that more on a per, per capita basis, and we shouldn't be tying those strings to uh, certain ideologies. That's uh, that's up to those local communities to decide. And the woke policies are are um, crazy. We're, we're falling behind. In the important things and in, in, in developing engineers and doctors and all of that, because we're not focusing on reading, writing and arithmetic. My, my wife's a math teacher and uh, she sees it all the time with the different uh, with. Uh, and, it, and it's been, quite frankly, Democrats and Republicans, whether it's no child left behind, um, whether it's currently with the standards based grading, even if they're not putting in CRT, they're doing a lot of other things that are damaging our ability to uh, to teach our children. And that should be a local and that should be handled on a local level. Uh, war in Ukraine, uh, lots of uh, pretty hot debate, even within the Republican Party, about what level of support we should be providing, if, if any, to, to Ukraine. What do you think? Well, make no mistake that, uh, that Russia is our enemy. And this picture you see behind me, actually, are the planes that I flew and the two planes you see up top that are a little bit lighter color. Um, those are actually Ukrainian planes. So those are from a, a joint exercise between us and, and the Ukrainians back in the 90s. So uh, I think it's important that we recognize that Russia has uh, imperialistic tendencies and we can't ignore what's happening in Europe because we've done that in a couple of other uh, situations. When we've ended up in world wars. Um, I think that all of our options need to be on the table. I frankly do not have enough intelligence information to 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 say which action we should take. I just know we shouldn't take actions off the table because when you do, you lose negotiating leverage. So we need to keep those things on the table. And, you know, when I see that information, I'm willing to, to use any option available if it makes sense. But first and foremost, anything that we do in a foreign country has to benefit Americans and be in America's interest. If it's not, we shouldn't be involved. Uh, you, you're going through a big gear shift, you know, go, going from a, a local official, a, a technocrat, I think it's fair to say. You, you're very, very versed in the, the ins and outs of how government works in Illinois and you're your town and the state uh, to federal issues. What else have you found in the course of knocking doors and such uh, are the federal issues that are that people are asking you about? Did I hit the, the right hot button list? Are there others? Well, so people, when you knock on doors, the federal issues don't really pop up. 
they're really worried about inflation and crime. That's what they're worried about. Uh, you, the other issues you talk about once in a while, you'll get someone mention those issues. But I think 75% of the people that we talked to at the doors, and we had a very extensive door knocking program, it was inflation and gas prices. So that's what you hear. And though, and that is, a, and inflation in particular is a federal related policy because our energy policies have generated this high inflation, high fuel costs. And people say, well, what are you going to do immediately? And that any, any changes you make in policy don't change the immediate situation. Well, they actually do because the way that markets react is that as soon as you tell them that you are going to start supplying oil and gas to the world and you're going to start entering this market, guess what? The Venezuelas, the OPEX, the Russias of the world, they start putting more product on the market because they want to keep your companies out um, because they can produce things more cheaply. So just the fact that you're ready to play in the market makes them put more supply out there. And as we, anyone who studied economics 101, more supply, same demand, prices come down. Prices come down for fuel. Prices are going to go down for all goods because everything we get is transported with something that uses fuel. So, so that, that's the most immediate thing that we can do to help people with inflation right now. So that translates into what? More drilling, more refining capacity, less reliance, at least in the near term on renewable energy or uh, what specifically would we do? I think it I think it translates into everything. So I think it's opening up more drilling and more leases, even if they don't start drilling, it's opening up pipelines, because if you know that it has to be trucked rather than than a pipeline, then they don't drill as much and they don't produce as much. Right. So we need to have all that. And and I hear people, oh, pipelines aren't safe. Well, everyone here in my district pretty much gets their gas get or gets their heating via natural gas. Right. So that's a pipeline. So we have pipelines all throughout the country. So and certainly as technology, as newer things are built, they're they're safer, they're they're cleaner. So we need to do all of that. We also need to be doing nuclear. We have we have expanded capacity at two nuclear power plants since the late 70s. We need to be doing more of that. That's the cleanest baseload energy you could possibly have. We have the technology to burn clean burn coal cleanly, which would help southern Illinois, which helps Illinois, which would help us all, right? If we're able to export some of that. We have hundreds of years of worldwide coal reserves. If we can burn that cleanly, that's great. Uh, same thing with natural gas. We have over a century's worth of natural gas reserves. So again, that all helps. At the same time, we should be looking at renewable energies that make economic sense. So solar certainly helps us, in particularly in places where the grid is questionable during high peak demand periods. Um, hydrogen, fuel, hydrogen fuel is really the future for cars, much more than electric vehicles are. So we need to look at all of those things and be doing all of it. Because we do all of it, we're not just taking one resource, we're using all of our resources, and we, and we generate energy much more cleanly than the rest of the world. The side benefit of all of that is by having reliable, inexpensive energy and a reliable grid like we have in the U.S., it brings manufacturing back to the U.S. because it makes it more economical. That and the supply chain disruptions, which does what? It takes away money from our enemies, which are China. So... We should also be exporting to Europe, which takes away energy. It, it takes away money from Russia and it makes it less likely that they will do what they're doing now. So all of these things are beneficial. And these are things that we can implement right away that start to signal signals to the world what we're going to do. And it's going to change their behavior, whether or not our product has yet hit the marketplace. And you, you mentioned China. That was, of course, one of Trump's major initiatives, resetting the relationship of, with tr China, trying to get a fair reciprocal trade terms, I assume you 
support that and their concern. I don't want to put words in your mouth about the Biden administration backtracking on that or or uh, uh, where do you stand with China on the world stage? Uh, so I think so. My opponent, for example, agree believes that climate change is our biggest enemy. Uh, no, our biggest enemy is China and Russia. Those are our biggest enemies. And until we acknowledge that, we will not have good foreign policy. So we need to acknowledge that those are our biggest enemies. And we have to acknowledge that China is not our friend. They're acting in their own interest and they have their own um, they have their own goals and desires. And it's not for the United States to succeed. I at my heart, at my core. I'm conservative and I believe in free market principles. That's my core. But at the same time, I believe in America first. And we need to have a, in every industry, we need to have a presence because you cannot turn over an industry to China. And I will give you an example. We know that most of our, most of our um, antibiotics are uh, produced in China. My granddaughter is visiting me right now. She lives in North Carolina and she doesn't live in some very uh, remote rural area. She lives in Newburn, North Carolina, which is two hours from Raleigh, an hour and a half from Wilmington, town of over 50,000 people. She had a, a sinus infection, needed to get liquid antibiotics before she came here. Nine pharmacies, not a single one of them had antibiotics for children. Not one in the United States that is absolutely unacceptable. And we need to make sure that those things are being produced here in the U.S. Turning, turning back to your campaign going forward, uh, you've got some smart uh, political people that I know behind you. Uh, what do you think your chances are for getting help from the Republican establishment in Washington, financial help? I'm talking about uh, the, RNC, the Republican National Campaign Committee or folks like that. Have they taken a look at your race and measured you up or what do you think? I have met with them uh, on a few occasions. I'm actually meeting with them after this uh, this podcast today, and uh, they're very supportive of the race. I think they're going to be very involved in the race. This is going to be a top-tier race in the country, so I think I am going to get their support. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of races in the country where there's an opportunity for pickup. This is one of them. I believe uh, from from their perspective, this is the number one race in the suburbs of Chicago for them to for us to pick up a seat. And so I will have a lot of support from uh, from the National Party. Keith, is there anything else about your, your persona, your background, or your views that uh, you feel hasn't really come out, that hasn't been fairly asked by the press so far, that you'd like to add, uh, something we should know about you? Uh, anything else we're, we're missing? I mean, you're a pretty well-known commodity, I think, in, in your hometown. My, uh, my relatives there, even Democrats, uh, they're like you. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, outside of your hometown, people are still getting to know you. What uh, what else would they you like them to know about you? You know, I think the important thing to know about me, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm just a regular person. I grew up in a very small, uh, you know, very small apartment. I, you know, my dad was very involved in the community, but was not very wealthy, but he, you know, they, they gave us the values. I, I worked very hard to put myself through school, my wife through school. Uh, we raised our kids. Uh, we really lived the American dream and, uh, you know, our children, uh, you know, are all grown now. And I've had the benefit of being a, a small businessman, which, we, which we've talked about. But I didn't have a lifelong goal of being in politics. And, and I hope, if anything, people learn from this is that um, we need people that aren't lifelong politicians. We need people who've had the, the experiences like I've had, a broad base of experiences, because we bring when you bring that to the table, it's, a lot of times it's the 
it's the unintended consequences of things that legislators pass that are the issues. And when you haven't actually had that experience of, of being a businessman or, or, uh, or being in the military or, or even being a mayor, you don't really understand the unintended consequences of, of the things that you do. And you really need to pay attention to that. And I think we need not just good people in Congress, but we need good people. And I, this is a, a, an appeal. We need good people to run for fire district boards, for school boards, for village boards, because government is best when it's closest to the people. Keith, uh, that'll wrap it up unless you have anything else to add. And thanks for bearing with us on some of the uh, glitches we've had in our, our first video here. Uh, but best of luck to you. We look forward to having Sean Kasten, your, your opponent on the show as well as other coming uh, candidates for uh, other major offices in Illinois. Keith Peacock, Mayor of Orland Park, uh, candidate for 6th Congressional District. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it.